From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Department of State and to the Treaty Room. As far as press conferences go, this one in September was a pretty tame one by Washington standards. No President Obama in the Rose Garden, just a small crowd of elected officials and dignitaries gathering to watch the signing of a document with a fairly innocuous name, a Memorandum of Understanding. But despite this bland title, the agreement is unprecedented. It promises Israel $38 billion over 10 years, the biggest military aid package the U.S. has ever given any country. Israeli acting national security advisor Jacob Nagel spoke at the ceremony. I am confident that this agreement will strengthen both our countries and the remarkable alliance between us. And U.S. National Security Advisor Susan Rice spoke too. For as long as the state of Israel has existed, the United States has been Israel's greatest friend and partner. That ironclad bond has endured, Lador Vador, from generation to generation, across parties and administrations. While the new 10-year commitment provides some predictability for Israel's long-term defense programs, the assistance is just a small part of Israel's annual defense budget. Its true value is in the broader message it sends, says David Makovsky, senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. There's no adversary in the Middle East today that is willing to put up $38 billion over 10 years against Israel at this time. And I think this is a message that's not lost on anybody, that don't misread differences, that at the core there remains a a shared commitment to Israel's security. The Obama administration has touted the aid as testament to its commitment to Israel's security. But nobody's denying that the political relationship between Israel and the United States in the last eight years has been marked by acrimonious public disputes. Probably without doubt the most dysfunctional relationship between an Israeli prime minister and an American president was the relationship over the past eight years between Benjamin Netanyahu and Barack Obama. Aaron David Miller is a long-term Middle East expert. He's now at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and he says the disagreements go beyond the personal differences between the two leaders. Clearly, there have been stresses and strains both at the personal level and the policy level, largely driven by Iran or Iran's putative quest for a nuclear weapon and American efforts to constrain and restrain it on one hand and by the absence of progress and the veritable impasse in the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Perhaps the low point came in 2015 during Netanyahu's visit to Washington, where, against the wishes of the president, he criticized the administration's nuclear deal with Iran directly to Congress. We've been told that no deal is better than a bad deal. Well, this is a bad deal. It's a very bad deal. We're better off without it. Zippy Livni is a former foreign minister of Israel. She's the leader of Tenua, an opposition party to Netanyahu's government. She says, now that the deal has been signed, it's time for both sides to move on. Now it's over. The agreement is there. And I believe that the right thing to do is to share and understand what are the mutual interests for Israel and the U.S. in an understanding that the relationship are truly based on values and that for Israel, The relations with the U.S. are of a strategic nature, and I believe that same goes to 
U.S.-Israel from the United States perspective. When it comes to defense, bilateral military cooperation is at an all-time high, says Michael Makovsky. He heads the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs. That's a nonprofit which promotes strong ties between the American and Israeli militaries. By all accounts, it's very good. You hear this on both sides. I mean, uh, we ask the, certainly the Israelis who are more sensitive to it. You hear that a lot, that the relationship with the military and the Pentagon is is excellent. So how can it be that the relationship between the U.S. and Israeli militaries is so good while there's been so much tension at the top and such fundamental disagreements over two huge issues, Iran's nuclear agreement and a Palestinian state? Both directly affect Israel's security. What do these fundamental disagreements mean for the future of the U.S.-Israeli relationship? And to answer those questions, we'll look at the history of the relationship between the two countries and how it's evolved over the decades. We'll also explore the impact of pro-Israel lobbying groups, the American Jewish community, and Christian evangelicals. Later, how Israel's conflict with the Palestinians is causing rifts within the Democratic Party and what that means for the future of America's relationship with Israel. We begin with a closer look at the strategic alliance between the two countries. In an era where it seems that Congress cannot agree on anything... The chair wishes to make an announcement regarding the decorum in the House chamber. The chair... Elected officials have no trouble getting along when it comes to supporting Israel. Mr. Speaker, I am very proud uh, to have worked on both sides of the aisle uh, in the leadership of advancing U.S.-Israeli relations. Israel is far and away America's largest recipient of military aid. Since its founding in 1948, the U.S. has given more than $120 billion. Today, Israel receives a little more than $3 billion a year in military aid, double the amount for the next biggest recipient, Egypt. So what is the U.S. getting for all of its money? In terms of bang for your buck, uh, American aid for Israel is something close to a bonanza. Michael Oren is a former Israeli ambassador to the United States and currently serves as Deputy Minister for Diplomacy under Netanyahu. The aid is an American interest, not just an Israeli interest. The United States spends many billions of dollars a year maintaining two fleets, the Fifth Fleet and the Sixth Fleet, which operate in the Middle East. But they don't operate anywhere near Israel. There are no American forces here. There are about 30,000 American forces in the Middle East. None of them are here. And the reason is is because Israel can defend itself. When Israel began receiving aid, its economy was very different from what it is now. Today, the Israeli defense industry makes billions of dollars exporting arms. The Israeli defense budget is close to $20 billion. And so America's $3.8 billion is just a fraction of that. Where, then, does the aid money go? Michael Oren explains. It's called QME qualitative military edge. And the Congress has committed to upholding Israel's qualitative military edge, our QME. And every year the president must report to the Congress how he is maintaining Israel's QME. In other words, better weapons and better technology. Josh Block heads the Israel Project, a pro-Israel education organization. He says the money has been used to bolster high-tech defenses, which have been critical to the safety and security of both countries. It invests that money in research and development and technologies like the armor reactive tiles that now shield all of our armor personnel carriers. That, and that while we were in Iraq 
in Afghanistan and other places saved the lives of countless American soldiers. Uh, it invented the lightning targeting pod that flies underneath uh, the vast majority of American jets. But this wasn't always America's position. And in fact, for many years, America provided no military assistance or weapons for Israel. To understand how this relationship has evolved, let's go back to 1948 to the founding of Israel. For the first time since the Roman legion destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, the Jewish people have a nation of their own. Immediately, President Harry Truman was faced with a dilemma, whether or not to recognize the new state. Most of his advisors were against it, says Middle East expert Dennis Ross. It's a really extraordinary episode in a lot of ways. Uh, President Truman recognizes the state of Israel when it declares itself over the opposition of every single one of his national security advisors. Truman even went against his own Secretary of State, George Marshall. He says to the president, uh, if I were to vote in the upcoming election and you decide in favor of what Clifford is arguing for, I wouldn't vote for you. Clifford was Clark Clifford, a domestic political counselor. He persuaded the president that the prospect of Arab retaliation was overblown and that America would look weak after already supporting Israel's bid for independence at the U.N., But recognition of the Jewish state, while important, still didn't mean the United States would guarantee Israel's survival, despite the country facing major wars in 1948, 1956, and 1967. Well, let's put it in perspective. For the first 20 years, the U.S. did very little for Israel. Very little for Israel. Israel got its arms from France, uh, and the reason it was able to, to build itself economically was because of German reparations. Truman didn't provide arms at all, and his successor Eisenhower only sent over 100 rifles. The first administration to provide a modern weapon system is the Kennedy administration, and that produces Hawk anti-aircraft missiles, which are it's a, a fixed, uh, immobile site. It's only used for defensive purposes. America's support for Israel for the first 20 years after it was established was carefully limited. But after 1967, in the middle of the Cold War, there was a shift. That's when Israel launched an attack against the Soviet-backed Egyptian military. That was in response to Egypt's decision to block Israel's access to the Red Sea. The strike completely incapacitated the Egyptian Air Force, and soon the fighting also engaged Jordanian and Syrian forces, which were allied with Egypt. In just six days, Israel vanquished them all and gained control over the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. Hero today of the Jewish peoples, General Moshe Dayan, defense minister and architect of the swiftest, most overwhelming victory of all time. That victory put Israel front and center in the minds of everyday Americans. The Johnson administration began to see Israel as a potential strategic partner in the Cold War. Israel was kind of reassessed as a valuable ally of the United States. Elliot Abrams is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He worked on Middle East issues for both the Reagan and George W. Bush administrations. Until 67, there were no uh, arms sales to Israel. Uh, The jets came after that. After that, America's relationship became critical for Israel's very survival, says former diplomat Dennis Ross, whose latest book is called Doomed to Succeed, the U.S.-Israel Relationship from Truman to Obama. For the first two decades of Israel's existence, the U.S. is not instrumental. Uh, after 73, and certainly because of 73, you could say we are, because the, the resupply is critical to Israel. And then what we provide from then on becomes critical as well. 
1973 was the year when Egypt, under the new president Anwar Sadat, launched a surprise attack on Israel during Yom Kippur, the holiest time of the year for Jews. The attack crippled Israeli defenses. They were desperate for a resupply from America. At the time, Richard Nixon was president. His secretary of state was Henry Kissinger. For the first week, we don't provide arms. We basically hold back in terms of resupply of the Israelis. Uh, And the reason is both Nixon and Kissinger believe that a stalemate will actually allow us to launch diplomacy. Uh, When it happens that, much to our surprise, when when Sadat doesn't agree after seven days to a Security Council resolution that would produce a ceasefire uh, in place and then produce negotiations, there's a significant arms resupply by the Soviets to the Egyptians and the Syrians, we then launch an unprecedented massive resupply of the Israelis. But the assistance had repercussions. That year, Arab states hit back at America with their strongest weapon, oil. Here's Saudi Arabia's King Faisal. America's complete support of Zionism against the Arabs makes it extremely difficult for us to continue to supply the United States petroleum needs and to even maintain our friendly relations with the United States. But the oil embargo wound up strengthening popular support for Israel. Long lines at gas stations infuriated Americans. The combination of the 73 war, the oil embargo, builds resentment towards the Arabs, especially in the Congress. And that brings Israel's democracy more into focus. Uh, And so that's why you begin to see more of a change Uh, in the 1970s. I have announced more than once that Israel has become an established fact recognized by the whole world. Under pressure from Secretary of State Kissinger, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat's stunning overture to the Israelis began a dialogue and negotiations that led to a landmark treaty between Israel and Egypt in 1979. Here's President Jimmy Carter. When we first arrived at Camp David, the first thing upon which we agreed was to ask the people of the world to pray that our negotiations would be successful. Those prayers have been answered far beyond any expectations. Shibli Talhami teaches Middle East history and policy at the University of Maryland. That was a strategic deal that was important to the U.S. Essentially, the U.S. told Israel, if you pull out of the Sinai completely that you occupied in 1967, we're going to reward you. And it told the Egyptians, if you make peace with Israel, abandon the Soviets, and tilt toward Washington, we're going to reward you. And so the U.S. paid huge amounts at the time, $2 billion to Egypt, $3 billion to Israel. In the 80s, during the Reagan administration, the security of Israel solidified as a bipartisan issue. America began to see defense cooperation and assistance to Israel as in its interests and not simply as a reward to Israel, says Dennis Ross. After the Reagan administration, uh, Israel is seen as a strategic asset of the United States as well as a country to whom we have a security commitment, a deep commitment. Plus, the American public was becoming increasingly nervous about news of violence in other parts of the Middle East, says Elliot Abrams. We had watched the airplane hijackings and other manifestations of terrorism by Palestinian forces. We'd seen Black September in Jordan. And all of this pushed Americans in the direction of favoring Israel, plus the fact that Israel was a democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East at that point. 
By the 1990s, the relationship between Israel and the United States was going strong. The two saw each other as committed partners in the peace negotiations with the Palestinians. In 1993, President Clinton watched as Israeli and Palestinian leaders shook hands at the White House and began negotiating peace under what became known as the Oslo Accords. A year later, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by an Orthodox Jew at a rally in support of the peace process. And today, Israelis still remember President Clinton's eulogy. President Weizmann, Acting Prime Minister Perez, to all the people of Israel, as you stay the course of peace, I make this pledge. Neither will America forsake you. While the Oslo Agreement collapsed, as did another attempt in 2000, relations between the countries remained strong. And that continued into the next administration, especially after terror attacks struck the United States on September 11, 2001. Americans are obviously, after 9-11, going to be very concerned about terrorism and anybody who engages in it or supports it. And they're going to feel a certain solidarity in anybody who's a victim of it. In the months after the attacks, President Bush began to forge a strong connection with Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. He also formed a tougher approach toward the Palestinians and their leader, Yasser Arafat. Bush saw Israel as a fellow victim of terrorism, and his support for Israel as a fellow democracy was reinforced by his strong Christian faith. Peace requires a new and different Palestinian leadership so that a Palestinian state can be born. But there's been no peace deal, despite several attempts since then. Which brings us back to the present administration. Elon Goldenberg runs the Middle East program at the Center for New American Security. In terms of the, the U.S.-Israel relationship today, we're basically at a crossroads. Was this Obama-Netanyahu kerfuffle of the last few years, is it purely personal or is there something deeper to it? Uh, my own instinct is, you know, at the strategic level, uh, the relationship is still there. So that's how the officials and the experts see the relationship. But what about the larger American public? What do they value most about the alliance? Coming up, we explore Israel's support in the United States, from Jewish Americans to pro-Israel lobbying groups to evangelical Christians. And we ask where it might be eroding and where it remains strong. While Christians love every nation and every people, uh, Israel's is family. You're listening to America's Bond with Israel, its history, and its current challenges on America Abroad. For extended interviews and other bonus materials on this and other episodes, visit our website at PRI.org. You're listening to America's Bond with Israel on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. So far in the program, we've heard about the history of the relationship between the two countries and how that has evolved slowly over time. While Israel is often criticized in the halls of the United Nations, not to mention in some parliaments in Europe, in America, public support for Israel is high. According to a Gallup poll conducted this year, Americans have become more sympathetic toward Israel over the past 15 years. Historically, American Jews have been some of Israel's strongest advocates, but they're just 2% of the U.S. population. To learn more about their influence, we reached out to Stephen M. Cohen. He's a sociologist and research professor at Hebrew Union College, and he's studied trends among Jewish Americans for decades. My sense is that the 1970s and 80s may have represented the peak 
of American Jewish political influence, in part because Jews were mobilized around Soviet Jewry, Israel, and liberal social causes, and in part because uh, since that time, American Jews have become less politically uh, oriented in their definition and in terms of their mobilization. And have they shifted in terms of being more conservative now? Not at all. They're um, as, uh, as liberal as ever. They're one of the most reliable Democratic voting blocs in, in the United States. Uh, their donors are um, heavily uh, on the Democratic side. The only ones who are on the Republican side are Orthodox and very affluent American Jews. But the, the rest of the population is heavily Democratic. Some years ago, the noted thinker Milton Himmelfarb commented, Jews earn like Episcopalians, yet vote like Hispanics. And um, that was true then, I guess, in the 60s or 70s when he said it. And um, you know, on a certain level, it's true today as well. And what about when it comes to Israel? How have American Jews changed, if they've changed, in terms of their attitude towards U.S. policy supporting Israel? They're still deeply concerned about Israel. It's a major symbol in Jewish identity. We have to remember it was never the most important symbol in Jewish life. We have surveys going back to the 1950s in which Israel wasn't you know, number one. And, you know, it was a kind of second echelon issue. It remains in that position today. And the notion of what it means to support Israel has shifted. Do you support Israel by supporting uh, settlement expansion or support Israel by opposing settlement expansion? Both of those are, are seen by Jews as ways of supporting Israel. And um, that difference of policy opinion has also meant for a difference of construction of what it means to be supportive of Israel. So that's why it's, it's a difficult to answer your question, because support for Israel can mean actually very contradictory policies. Well, let's talk about the settlements. That is a flashpoint in terms of the U.S. policy, the official right. policy towards Israel. Where do American Jews stand when it comes to the settlements? Well, and um, uh, on survey after survey, a majority of American Jews um, have negative attitudes towards the settlements. They think settlements will uh, harm Israel's uh, security. They don't like to see the expansion of Jewish settlements on the West Bank, which, or some of them call the occupied Palestine territories, and others call Judea and Samaria. You know, even the language uh, that you use to talk about the area reflects one's political position. So they're divided about settlements. The majorities or pluralities tend to oppose settlements. There's a, um, a moral claim, a moral opposition to settlements and the general policy around it, which emanates from those who define themselves as very liberal and to some extent those who call themselves liberal. And they see settlements and Israel's relationship to Palestinians as being a, a morally complex issue and they tend to be younger and, as I indicated, more politically on the left. And so has that negative opinion toward the settlements, has that translated into more support for the Palestinians? Um, no. Uh, on most of the surveys, the uh, American Jews have positive views of Israelis. They sympathize with Israelis. They don't express sympathy or a lot of faith in the Palestinians. Those are two different issues. So Israel may be faulty 
but Palestinians are seen as threatening and untrustworthy. So those are two different dimensions that don't necessarily correlate. Now, America, the U.S. has had uh, has been a longstanding supporter of Israel and has been more supportive than other Western democracies. A lot of people say, well, that's the influence of political Jews. Is that accurate? I'm not a political scientist. I'm a I'm a sociologist. Um, my sense is that the that America has had its own reasons for investment in the region, uh, in Israel, and in the surrounding countries. And the uh, influence of American Jews actually has been minor, uh, but you know it has certainly affected some de- some decisions. But in both Republican and Democratic administrations, presidents and secretaries of state have taken positions that run into opposition from American Jews, and yet they managed to take those positions. So loan guarantees, be it on settlements, on all kinds of issues, uh, military aid package. And, and so I think it's hard to make the case that it's the Jews and their presence in America which has led to a different policy than, say, the EU. I think there are cultural reasons for America's uh, interest in, in the Middle East and in Israel, and there are real politic reasons that derive from America's position in the world as you know the world's leading diplomatic and military power. So I think that those are better explanations for why America is doing what it's been doing. That's Stephen M. Cohen from Hebrew Union College. So if Jewish Americans aren't driving policy, what about pro-Israel lobbies? APAC, which stands for the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is a powerful force in Washington. It claims to have over 100,000 members, including a growing number of Christian evangelicals. The group raises tens of millions of dollars each year to advocate for Israel. While APAC itself declined to speak with us for this program, we did speak with another Israel advocacy group, which is more politically liberal than APAC. Lobbying and advocacy are not rocket science. Jeremy Ben-Ami is the president of J Street, which he describes as the pro-Israel, pro-peace lobby. There are some basic things that are really important to convey to the people whose opinions you're trying to affect. Number one, you need to convey that it's an opinion that actually has real support from people, in particular support from constituents. Uh, These are elected representatives of districts, and a good, effective lobby organizes, you know, constituents from districts to meet regularly with their elected representatives and convey their opinions. And I think that J Street uh, has been effective. I know that APAC has been effective. Other uh, groups in the American Jewish community have really sort of laid out a playbook of how you build that kind of a network district by district, state by state across the country. Uh, And in our system, political fundraising is also very important. And so J Street has a PAC, uh, and we endorse candidates and we raise money. And that is an additional route to building relationships and opening up doors. It's one of the most effective, you know, American lobbying groups on any issue, whether it's domestic or foreign policy. That's University of Maryland's Shibley Talhami. He says organizational acumen is a factor for the pro-Israel lobby's success, but it's not the most important one. It's not about the organization. It's about what you bring to the table. Politicians are going to be sensitive to electoral politics. So what's electoral politics about? It's about campaign contributions, which means you need a large set of people who are prepared to put a lot of money because we, you know, as you know, you know how many, we all have limits about what individuals can do. Yeah, we, we have now that ability. Rich people now have the ability to go through these packs and, and do more. 
But historically, it's really about that. So you have to tap into a lot of people who care deeply about an issue and willing to write a big check. That's where the power comes from. Aaron David Miller of the Woodrow Wilson Center says it's important to understand that despite the numbers or the money that APAC members may donate in support of political candidates, lobbying groups are limited in their power. Someone asked me, in 20-plus years of pursuing the Arab-Israeli negotiations, can you point to one example where you didn't do something that was smart because of overt pressure from lobby group A, B, or C? And the answer to that question is no. In fact, when willful, skillful presidents decide that they want something done in relationship to Israel or the Arab-Israeli conflict, they do it. I give you Jimmy Carter, or before Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, who had some really bad spats, as did Kissinger as well with Rabin, or Carter and Begin, or Bush 41 with loan guarantees in Shamir, or even Barack Obama when it comes to the Iran agreement. Willful, skillful presidents who want to pursue policies that they believe to be in the national interest, that are urgent and that are doable, will not be dissuaded or prevented from doing those things because of of American domestic politics. Outside Washington, Israel enjoys support in places you might not expect. Chris Connolly sends us this report from Fort Worth, Texas. If you're looking for the most reliable bastion of U.S. support for Israel, you'll find it in a house of worship. But it might not be the one you're thinking of. To him be the glory in the church for all generations. Evangelical Christians make up the biggest pro-Israel bloc in the U.S. Support for Israel is stronger among American evangelicals than it is even for Jewish Americans. According to the Pew Research Center, 82% of white evangelicals think God gave Israel to the Jewish people. Less than half as many American Jews or Catholics agree. Robert Nicholson is the executive director of the Philos Project, a nonprofit working to promote positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. So you can see that while you know there is support uh, for different reasons among these other communities, evangelicals far and away are 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 more supportive and, and more eager to do more even. And according to a Bloomberg poll, almost 60% of evangelicals say the U.S. should support Israel, even if its interests diverge from American interests. Supporting Israel is not a political issue. It is a Bible issue. That's Pastor John Hagee, who heads up the massive Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. Hagee founded Christians United for Israel a decade ago, which has become one of the strongest pro-Israel evangelical groups in the country. In his speech, Hagee said Israel's security is threatened by instability in the Middle East and lambasted the Obama administration for criticizing Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Now, what is America's response to the Middle East crisis? We're putting more pressure on Israel, of course. Hagee gave his speech as part of the annual Washington Summit, organized by Christians United for Israel. The conference is a show of force for the organization, which claims three million members. In a Facebook video broadcast from Jerusalem in September, Hagee said that at that conference, the thousands of attendees are deployed to Capitol Hill to lobby Congress. Every group goes to every senator and every congressman with the same talking points about things we want them to be concerned about in relationship to Israel. And I can assure you 
that the strength of what we do has caused a political earthquake in Washington from time to time. For some, the power of organizations like Christians United for Israel to influence U.S. foreign policy is outsized. But that influence wouldn't exist without a receptive audience. While Christians love every nation and every people, uh, Israel is family. Arizona Republican Trent Franks chairs the Congressional Israeli Allies Caucus. He says America has benefited from this relationship, but he says the closeness American Christians feel for Israel is not based solely on strategic or political gain. Rather, he says, it's based on an appreciation of the Jewish people and on a shared spiritual heritage. Christians of the world understand that uh, we couldn't even describe or explain our existence without Israel. So there is a natural connection there on, on, on a basis that usually is not uh, considered a great deal. Depending on how you define it, about one in four Americans are evangelicals. Richard Land is president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary near Charlotte, North Carolina. He says, like many of his faith, he was raised in a tradition that believed that the Jews are God's chosen people. And that God gave the land of Israel to the Jews forever and that God blesses those who bless the Jews, and God curses those who curse the Jews. And if we want God to bless us, and we want God to bless America, then we need to bless the Jews. The reestablishment of Israel in 1948 is seen by some as a reestablishment of this promise. Daryl Bach is a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He says Christian support for Israel is largely couched in the belief that God makes good on his promises. So when he promised land and security to the Jews, he meant it. It looks back to the idea that God has made certain commitments to his people, to the people through whom the gospel originally came, and he's not abandoned them ultimately. And so there is this hope that, uh, that drives uh, this belief that Israel deserves to be supported. There are other biblical and more future-oriented reasons that some evangelicals adhere to. And that's prophecy, that Israel has a major role to play at the end of days. Those prophecies were the basis of the hugely popular Left Behind book series, which sold millions of copies. The film adaptation opens with Israel under attack. Warplanes are moving in from all sides. It looks like the Israeli Air Force never sleeps. Those are not our planes. Not from that direction. Tanks and helicopters stream over the borders. Israel is clearly on the brink of destruction. And then, miraculously, God destroys all of the invading armies. The scene sets off the rapture, the rise of the Antichrist, Armageddon, and ultimately the return of Jesus Christ and peace on earth. To take this sort of popularized, apocalyptic, uh, sort of end times uh, view as the norm is, is, is a huge mistake. It's absolutely not, and, and most evangelicals don't share it. Again, Robert Nicholson from The Philos Project. He says success in pop culture doesn't measure the breadth or the depth of these beliefs in the evangelical community. According to one poll, 12% of evangelicals think that these events will happen in their lifetimes. Many believe the end times will come, but don't know when. But Nicholson says that's beside the point. Most evangelicals, he says, feel connected to Israel because of a feeling of shared values. Daryl Bach 
Block of the Dallas Theological Seminary, though, notes that among some younger evangelicals, there's an increasing interest in striking a balance between Israeli and Palestinian concerns. What drives a millennial are concerns about justice questions, and there are real questions related to justice and how Israel handles the Palestinians. Of course, the flip side of this is that there are real problems of security uh, that Israel has to cope with. And so Israel is a very tangled web. Richard Land, the head of the Southern Evangelical Seminary, says beyond the generational shift, there's another reason that some evangelicals are increasingly interested in Palestinian rights. Since the intifadas of the 1990s, more Palestinian Christians have come to the U.S. And um, so a lot more evangelical Christians know Palestinians than was the case 20 years ago. Uh, because they're their neighbors and they're their fellow church members. For Todd Detheridge, that's welcome news. Detheridge was raised an evangelical, worked in Republican politics, and then founded the Telos Group, which is focused on what he calls pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, and pro-peace solutions. You could define it in the way in which it would be to bless Israel is to bless Palestinians, and to bless Palestinians is to bless Israelis too. But even as Deathridge sees more support among evangelicals for this approach, he acknowledges the numbers are still relatively small. A recent Pew Research poll found that nearly 80% of white evangelicals said they felt more sympathy for Israelis than Palestinians. So, while there are tens of millions of American evangelicals with a range of views, it's clear that the core is still solidly on the side of Israel. For America Abroad, I'm Christopher Connolly in Fort Worth. Coming up, how the left is splintering in its support for Israel over the Palestinian issue and what one of Israel's most influential politicians thinks should be done about it. Israel should take some steps that would reduce the tension, send a message to the entire world and the Palestinians that when we say two states for two peoples, we mean it. That's just ahead. If you'd like to weigh in on this conversation, tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America's Bond with Israel on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. While it's true American support for Israel is stronger than ever, a closer look at the numbers reveals that the relationship is far from static. Elliot Abrams from the Council on Foreign Relations. The composition of those numbers changes. That is, you may have, let's say, 80-20 support, but the 80% has moved to the right. Uh, it's more Republican. It's less Democrat. And that should be troubling to any Israeli who's looking for solid American support over time. One place where this divide was most evident was during the Democratic Party platform debates last summer, where a number of Bernie Sanders supporters were pushing for a more pro-Palestinian stance. Here's prominent activist and DNC platform committee member Cornell West. A commitment to security for precious Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel can never be predicated on an occupation. University of Maryland's Shibli Telhami has been polling on this issue. What we have is that huge partisan divide on Israel. I mean huge. I've documented this over the past two, three years in my polling, and it is like two worlds. Now among Democrats, over 80 percent in some cases even 90%, and particularly among the millennials, the new generation, younger people, they want the U.S. to be even-handed. Israeli-Palestinian conflict for a significant segment of the Democratic Party has become an example or core example 
of the type of things that they want to address as a group. To understand how this divide is manifesting itself within parts of the American Jewish religious community, we reached out to Rabbi Jill Jacobs. She leads a left-wing group called Trua, a network of 1,800 rabbis across the U.S. and Canada, which advocates for the rights of both Israelis and Palestinians. For me, the defining moment was first in college. I was in college during Oslo, and having that sense of hope. At that point, I had learned a little bit more about the Palestinian narrative. I understood that there were two narratives of what is happening in that place, that there are two peoples who are trying to live there. And that drove me to go in 2002 to organize with a friend, a group of students from the Jewish Theological Seminary, to go to East Jerusalem to find out what was happening there. And we spent a day in East Jerusalem. I had never before seen that there could be people who were living within the municipal boundaries of Jerusalem, but without the same rights as the people who are living in West Jerusalem. This was even before some of these communities were on the other side of the wall. And for me, that that deepened my commitment to work on Israel, to be pro-Israel in such a way that also ensures that Palestinians have human rights. Jacob says her stance has put her at odds with others who advocate for Israel. We see our work very much as supporting the state of Israel. And as a rabbinic human rights organization, where we stand is in a place of saying that the most Jewish thing to do is to be deeply committed to the long-term safety and security and prosperity of the state of Israel, and also to ensure that the human rights of people, both Israelis and Palestinians, are protected. But for some on the left, they are tired of waiting for the American government to push Israel in a meaningful way. Yusuf Menayer leads a group called the U.S. Campaign to End Israeli Occupation. He applauds when Obama speaks out against Israel on things like the settlement issue, but he wants U.S. policy to go further. You know, the State Department has, on various occasions this year, condemned in very, very strong language Israeli settlement building, calling it corrosive to the cause of peace. And yet, despite the fact that the Israelis continue to do this, something that's been against stated U.S. policy for 50 years, U.S. actions don't line up with U.S. words. You know, you can't tell someone, please don't do this thing that I don't want you to do, and then continue to shower them with boatloads of money. The message that you're sending with your actions and the message that you're sending with your words are completely different. So what we're calling for is U.S. action that is in line with the stated policy objectives, bringing forward a just peace based on international law. So the United States is directly involved in supporting this occupation. And the key tool that they use to do that is through this military aid and support. It is the most direct and important indicator of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Support for punitive measures against Israel's actions is gaining traction, especially on college campuses. For over a decade, a movement called BDS, which stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions, has been calling for the use of economic tactics to pressure Israel into changing its stance on Palestinian issues. It's important to note that the BDS movement is is not new. Uh, It's an extension of the Arab boycott, which was in existence pre-1948. In other words, historically, there has always been an effort to try to drive a wedge between Israel and its trade partners. 
Jonathan Shanzer from the right-leaning Foundation for Defense of Democracies has been observing the fracturing among progressives over the Palestinian issue. I think it remains to be seen whether this has a long-term impact on Israel's alliance with the United States. Right now, it seems to be a minor issue. While still a relatively small movement, the campaign is unsettling for Zippy Livni, the former foreign minister of Israel. She was once considered a possible candidate for prime minister. Today, Livni is a centrist voice in Israel and remains one of the country's most influential leaders. She takes BDS and any fracturing of U.S. support for Israel seriously. Altogether, we have more and more young people that really don't understand what is Israel, what are the Israeli values, the Jewish values, our democratic values. And their ignorance is being exploited and abused by this small movement, and they are growing. But isn't it also that they are looking at what's happening in the Palestinian territories and looking at what Israel has been doing there and saying and identifying with the Palestinians as the victims? Um, they're seeing them as oppressed and by a, a, a better militarily equipped uh, Israel. You know, I would not ask anybody to turn a blind eye to all the situation in the region. I would never suggest that there is no conflict between us and us and the Palestinians and every, everything is really great here. No, it's not. We have a conflict. We are trying to solve it. Uh, as I said before, my position is that this is our interest, but yet we are facing also terror. And when uh, we need to fight terror, this is what we do. And when we have Hamas controlling Gaza Strip, Hamas represents a religious side of the conflict. They would never accept the right of Israel to exist. The entire international community uh, asked Hamas in order to get legitimacy, to accept the right of Israel to exist, to renounce violence and terrorism, and to accept the former uh, peace agreements, peace treaties between Israel and the Palestinians. And they are not willing to do so. And those who are paying the price are the people in Gaza. They are using these citizens, civilians, as really human shields in we are trying to act against terror in Gaza. So, yes, unfortunately, civilians are paying the price with their lives, something that we are trying to avoid. But there is one thing that I would never accept. And this is the comparison between an Israeli soldier and a terrorist. Because... Our values and the way the Israeli IDF, our army, is acting is trying to avoid civil casualties when these terrorists are looking for civilians to kill. So also from a moral perspective, I would never accept this comparison. Well, let's talk about the collapse of the peace talks. What do you see as the main reason for the stagnation in the peace process in the last few years? There is one thing that I decided not to do, and this is to participate in the blame game. What's the use of it? I believe that achieving peace with the Palestinian is an Israeli interest, not a favor to the Palestinian or the Arab world, and not even a favor to any president of the United States. And even without a Palestinian partner, Israel should take some steps that would reduce the tension, send a message to the entire world and the Palestinians that we are serious, that we, when we say two states for two peoples, we mean it. And we are willing to pay also, in a way, some prices in order to do so, because we understand uh, that it serves uh, our major interest in the region, not just between us and the Palestinians, but it can change strategically. Uh, the situation and the position of Israel in the region. 
And this is why I support it. So we can blame each other, but what's the use of it? Are you talking about the settlement issue? Um, are you talking about that? Oh, yes. Okay. Can you go into more detail about that? Settlement activities were part of another vision, a vision of greater Israel, a vision of one state, which is not my vision anymore. And I believe that this is not the vision of a vast majority of Israelis. And therefore, we need to keep what we call blocks of settlements, places that are very close to the Green Line, the line that was in 67, that most of the Israelis are living there, we can keep. But I believe that building more settlements, expanding settlements, it doesn't serve our vision anymore. That's former Israeli Foreign Minister Zippy Livni speaking to us from Tel Aviv. The Israeli-Palestinian issue is clearly having an impact among American progressives. The question is, in the end, does it really impact and affect the hardcore elements of the U.S.-Israeli relationship? Again, Aaron David Miller of the Wilson Center. At this point, I would say the answer is probably not. I don't want to dismiss or trivialize the reality that there are many uh, representatives and senators who are willing to be far more critical of Israel, particularly on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But the question is, when you add it all up, what does it mean? I mean, you get 88 senators to sign a letter which basically chides or tries to preempt the administration from imposing any sort of UN Security Council resolution. 88 out of 100 is still quite impressive. Youssef Manayer of End the Occupation agrees that the status quo appears unlikely to change for now. It's going to take a lot of reckoning with what our policy has been, why it's failed, and how we move forward after that. And that's a very difficult conversation to have. And I don't think we're at that moment quite yet in terms of the will of the political leadership here to take that step. Strategic interests are what brought the two countries together 50 years ago, and they are even stronger today, says former diplomat Dennis Ross. Today, there's something quite ironic taking place. Because the Obama administration's relationship with the Sunni Arab states is not great, you know, oftentimes the relationship that Israel has, even if it's not always broadcast, becomes an important one, even for us. And the proof that this alliance isn't weakening is the 10-year military aid deal President Obama just signed. It begins in 2018 and will last until 2028, at the very least through three more administrations, the U.S. and Israel will still be closely aligned. You've been listening to America's Bond with Israel, its history and its current challenges on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr with additional production help from Flan Williams. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for the show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.